pray together. Lord Jesus, you said apart from you we can do nothing. And so none of the things we've been singing this morning or we'll be reading in your word are in our own ability to carry out. And so as you tell us, we look to you as the author and the finisher and perfecter of our faith. Lord, this morning we saw in Sunday school our only hope of persevering to the end and not making shipwreck of faith is that you keep us and that you intercede for us. You are able to save to the uttermost because you live forever to make intercession for us. So thank you that you don't just get this salvation started and leave it up to our own power, but that you do everything necessary to bring us all the way home if we're yours. So thank you for that. I pray for anyone who doesn't know you yet, that even today they would understand their need to be rescued from sin and brought to God through Christ. And Lord, as we open your word together, um, it will be so different than what the world around us says and even what our own thoughts and feelings might be. And so I pray the Holy Spirit would overcome those other voices and that we would hear your voice this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 127 reminds us that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. We would all like to have strong, healthy families, but our efforts will prove to be frustrating if we leave the Lord out of the building process. We won't figure it out in our own wisdom. We won't make it happen in our own strength. We really need the Lord to build our homes. And a big part of that is knowing and following his instructions. Our text for today gives us some of God's instructions about marriage. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. And just two brief observations before we look at the verses. And the first would be, Peter did not write these words for a wedding or a couple's retreat. He's writing to a local church, actually a number of local churches, which would be made up of both married and unmarried people. And so that tells us there's a benefit to knowing what God says about marriage regardless of our current marital status. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, beneficial, helpful for instruction and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. So all scripture, including this passage, whatever your current state is, is profitable. And so we're going to look at it. A second Observation is Peter is writing to first-generation Christians. In other words, none of them had ever seen an example of a Christian marriage before. Which reminds us, it doesn't matter if we grew up in a home where these instructions were modeled for us. 
It's a great blessing if they were, but many of us wouldn't have that. But we're still called to follow the Lord's wise instructions and depend on his enabling grace. So Peter starts with two main instructions for wives. First, wives are called to appropriate submission. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. We find similar instruction to that in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to turn over to that passage, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then over in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So there's a lot of misunderstanding and misuse of the word submission. So let's start with a definition. This is from John Piper. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. So basically, submission is a willing acceptance of a husband's God-given leadership role in the home. So what might that look like? Let's say uh, there's a couple having car problems. And of course they discuss the situation together and they listen to each other and hopefully pray for wisdom. And so already we've said it's not like submission means a wife's opinions don't matter or husbands are always right because we're not. And maybe the wife thinks, we should get rid of this old car and get a different one. And the husband's thinking, you know, don't think we can do that. We need to wait and keep fixing up this one. And at some point, a decision has to be made. And so the husband makes the call, and the wife is called to accept that decision. Elizabeth Elliot points out, it's not submission if he already agrees with you. That would just be that he's smart enough to see it your way. That's not meant to be funny, but most of the time, hopefully, there is the ability to work together and come to an agreement and have a win-win situation. But sometimes it's kind of a tie, and somebody has to break the tie. And this is saying the husband breaks that tie and is responsible to God for the call he makes on that decision. Peter mentions a possible outcome of such submission. He says, so that, this is back in First Peter now, 
even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. 2 Corinthians 6 is very clear that believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But here's a scenario where a couple got married when they're both unbelievers, and then at some point, by the grace of God, the wife comes to know Christ. And of course, she wants her husband to come to Christ too. And Peter isn't saying she can never talk about Christ. And Piper says, I don't think verse 1 means a wife cannot talk to her husband about her faith, but surely it means that there is a kind of speaking that is counterproductive. And he mentions nagging and badgering. Peter says, your chaste and respectful behavior may be the means God uses to bring your husband to the Savior. So this is quoting from Edmund Clowney. The silent eloquence of a wife's pure and reverent behavior can preach daily the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Augustine describes the faithful witness of his Christian mother, Monica, to his pagan father, Patricius. She served her husband and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. So there's an example of being one without a word through the behavior of the wife. Peter also talks about appropriate adornment in verse 3 and 4. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Adorn means to enhance appearance, to make more beautiful or more attractive. For example, flowers adorned the bride's hair. So Peter's not forbidding Ladies from braiding their hair or wearing jewelry or putting on dresses. What he is saying is, don't think about beauty the way the world thinks about it, as if it's all about external things and outward appearance. Think about beauty the way God sees it, namely the inner beauty of the heart and a gentle and quiet spirit. Those are the things that are precious in God's sight. And so give appropriate attention to cultivating those qualities. Peter then gives an example of appropriate submission and adornment. Verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So Peter says, an example of what I'm talking about would be the holy women who hoped in God in the past, that they adorned themselves with a gentle, quiet spirit, and they submitted to their husbands. And he says, think of Sarah. And there's a number of examples you could look at for Sarah. I thought we should just look at the first example we come across in the story of Abraham and Sarah. So go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And just to give you the context, God has not spoken directly to human beings for what we're guessing was at least a thousand years since the flood. 
And so we meet Abraham and Sarah. At that time, they're called Abram and Sarai. But now the first time God speaks in hundreds and hundreds of years, Abraham worshipped idols beyond the river, Joshua tells us. So he's an idol worshiper. It says in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Boom, out of the blue. God has not spoken directly to a human being, as best as we can tell, for at least a thousand years. And now Abraham hears God speak and tell him, Leave, Haran, and I'll show you where you're to go. So Abraham, we find out, is 75 years old when he gets this message from God. And he tells his wife, Sarah, we're moving from Haran. Don't you think Sarah would ask, where are we going? (laughs) I mean, the text doesn't say that, but can you imagine just saying, we're moving? Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to ask where. We'll just go. She's human. Where are we going, Abraham? I don't know. The, the Lord will show us. There would that would be challenging as a wife to just okay, so God hasn't spoken for a thousand years, but he spoke to you. And he gave you this instruction to move, and you don't know where. And there would just be a lot of unanswered questions there. A lot about what is going on and what's going to happen next, and how is this all going to work out. But Sarah accepts Abraham's decision, and they move. And Peter says, you have become her children. You're showing yourself to be members of her family If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. In other words, trust God to work through your husband. Even if it's not the way you would have done things. Don't be afraid. God will work it all out. And it's just one more example that we've already seen in the book of 1 Peter. Our job is to do what is right and trust that God will see that we come out right. God has a plan. He can use even the less than ideal choices of husbands to accomplish his purposes. Which is good news. Because no husbands, including this one, is perfect and wise and always makes the best decisions. And God works in spite of those to accomplish his purposes. And a wife is called, just trust God enough to trust your husband and God will work it out. Next, Peter has two main instructions for husbands. Verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. We find similar instructions for husbands in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, so let's go back to those passages again. Ephesians 5, verse 1. 
verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's this call to look out for the well-being of her wife, even sacrificially. And then in Colossians chapter 3, shorter instruction, husbands, 319, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Some translations have do not be harsh with them. And here in First Peter, part of loving our wives is living with them with appropriate understanding. So he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. It's literally live according to knowledge. Instead of being clueless about our wives and having no idea what makes them tick, we are called to live according to knowledge, which means we need to learn what our wives are like and how they think and what their needs are. And that includes recognizing that there are differences between men and women. When Peter says she's weaker, doesn't mean she's weaker intellectually or weaker spiritually. It's just a general observation that typically women are not as strong as men physically. So what might that look like? Well, to go back to our car problem situation, let's say you've been trying to follow this verse and that you have been paying attention, which is a big first step for most of us, paying attention, and you've become aware, you're starting to get the fact that saving money is really important to your wife And she has very strong feelings against the idea of going into debt. And so, let's say you have to decide we're going to get a a different car. Instead of getting a car that you really can't afford right now and taking out a loan, you save up and find a car that fits your budget and you don't get a loan. And that is showing you've taken your wife's thoughts and feelings into account. It's part of living with your wife in an understanding way. Trying to care about what she is concerned about. And in any given week, there will be opportunities and a variety of ways to do that. Not just big decisions like buying a car, but just in any given week. Second, appropriate honor. The last phrase of verse 7 says, Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Uh, We saw in Romans 13, 7, we touched on it on Mother's Day, render to all what is due them, honor to whom honor is due. And our wives are already worthy of honor. Go to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Verse 10, an excellent wife who can find for her worth 
is far above jewels. And then in verse 28, her husband, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So your wife is already, my wife is already worthy of honor because she's an excellent wife. And then Peter adds, another reason to honor her is she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. She is a full and equal partner in the grace of God that gives eternal life. She has equal status before God. We see that, of course, in Galatians 3.28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So wives or women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They share all the same rights and privileges in Christ. So just think back at some of the spiritual blessings we've already seen in this letter of 1 Peter. These apply both to men and women, wives and husbands. We've been chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We've been born again to a living hope according to God's great mercy. We are being kept by the power of God to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. We've been redeemed by nothing less than the precious blood of Christ. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. All those blessings and many more throughout the New Testament are because we have been made heirs by the grace of God, of the grace of life, and so now wives and husbands are fellow heirs of all those blessings. Which means she's worthy of honor because of that. Well, how serious is God about following this verse? Look at the rest of verse 7. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of God. So that your prayers will not be hindered. So here's a man, he knows he needs to pray. It's a tough situation at work or a complicated situation with a relative. And so he asked God for help. That's a good thing to do. That's what we should do. We should pray. And those are legitimate requests. That's not the problem. But verse 7 is saying, if he's not showing his wife the appropriate honor that is due her as a fellow heir of the grace of life, those prayers will be hindered. There will be a blockage. It's like a plugged drain. And the, it's not get, the water's not getting through because something's plugging it up. And you have to get the, whatever it is, the gunk out before it can flow through. And this verse is saying, not honoring your wife appropriately will clog up your prayers. That's how seriously husbands are to take this verse because that's how seriously God takes it. He connects it to the effectiveness of our prayers. Well, God created marriage in the first place. He knows how he designed it to work for the good of both the husband and the wife. And he hasn't left us to guess what we're supposed to do. He's given us some very clear instructions in his word And knowing and following his instructions by his enabling grace 
is one of the main ways we will experience the blessing of the Lord building our homes. But we won't be able to follow what God says or even want to do it until we have a relationship with God. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we all start with hearts that are hostile toward God. We're not neutral. We're not favorable toward God. We're hostile. And we all start off with hearts that are not able to obey God and not able to please God. So we're hostile rebels against God's rightful authority, and therefore we fully deserve the just consequences of our sin, namely death and hell. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, which is separation from God now, which is not remedied in this lifetime, is separation from God for all eternity in hell. But the good news is that God has mercifully intervened. He sent his own son into the world to rescue sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a true statement and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience we should have lived and did not and could not. And he died the death we should have died in our place. Just last Sunday, we saw that in verse 24 of chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. There's that substitution. That should have been us. Not just the physical pain of a cross, but the judgment of God, the wrath of God falling on Jesus as he laid our iniquities on him. That should have been us. And then he didn't stay dead. God raised him up from the grave on the third day to show that Christ had accomplished the work of salvation that God had sent him to do. And if the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to see these realities, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul says it in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You will be saved, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this invitation in your word that whoever we are, no matter what we've done, we can call on you and get mercy, grace and forgiveness and salvation, none of which we could ever deserve, none of which we could earn in any way. Just a gift of your grace. And so I pray for anyone listening in person or online, Lord, if they've never called on the name of the Lord Jesus, 
the only name given among men by which we must be saved, that they would do so even today. They would put all their hope and trust in him alone. And Lord, by your grace, many of us have trusted Christ. We own him as our Lord and Savior. We want to follow him. We want to follow his word and his instructions. And so pray for those who are married, Lord, that we would follow these instructions that you have given for husbands and wives. And for those who aren't married, Lord, if it's your will for them to be married someday, that they would not forget these instructions and that, um, Lord, we would build our homes on you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.